Hello. Hello, Marilyn. How are you? Good. Can you hear me okay? I hear you great. What'd you do? Excellent. Something oh, different. No, just moving stuff around. How's it going? Good. You sound excellent. Oh, thank you. You're nice to say so. It's true. You're nice to say so. I'm closing tabs. I'm closing tabs. <laughs> uh, closing tabs. I'm closing Slack. I'm closing tabs. You sound well. Thank you. Thank you. I feel well. <clears throat> I'm having a coffee. That time of day, it's coffee time. Coffee time from with Merlin Man. Uh, coffee time. Well, I thought of you the other day. What did I see? Oh God, it's the funny new uh, cult diet thing. Have you seen this? <laughs> you thought of me. Thank you. <laughs> no, I mean because I know you have you have a certain way you, you like to eat. I and do. I do. Consume. And what was it? It was like oh, I can't find it. I thought I had an Insta paper. No, but it was this. It's this guy who's got a new book. And he's got like, oh, no, the real problem with everything is this. And, and it's like, you shouldn't eat plants. He's got like a whole new thing about how like it's not just grains. It's just not gluten free. The reason you've got arthritis is because of tomatoes or whatever. I like I already <laughs> like the sound of this. Yeah. OK, let's try. OK, uh, a bunch of people link to it. Uh, gluten. Hey, anybody out there who's listening? Are you, is this live? Is this thing on? Yeah, we're all totally live. I know the show on air, but if anybody's listening, uh, Twitter me a link to the guy who has the unified field theory about plants. I like that. That's the, that's a good game theory record. Because my, my mom is doing um, the opposite. She's on a plant-only diet. Yeah. And I've been telling yeah, her, it, get off get off of that, mom. Is she a freaking vegan, Dan? You know, I don't know what that means, but I'm going to yeah. say yes. Okay. All right. Excellent. Uh, I learned about this from Parks and Rec. Uh, freaking vegan, uh, that's somebody who's not just a vegan, but they only eat uh, vegan things that other people have like thrown out. Oh no, she's not that. She's not a dumpster diver. No. Does she steal any food at all, Dan? That you know of? No, she's no. You ever steal fun food? You ever steal food? I've stolen it off of someone's plate. Uh, I've stolen so much food. Like from a from a grocery store? Sure, everything, wow. everything. I was just thinking the other day about how one of the. Th I mean, there's so many things I'm embarrassed about in life. Um, I've reached that age where they really accumulate. Yeah. But yeah, when I was a busboy, I would occasionally steal a six pack of Michelob. And so, you know, the, you, good, stuff. the good stuff, right? It's <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know if you remember, but weekends are made for Michelob. I don't remember. Weekends are made for Michelob. And, um, which seemed like an impossibly large amount of beer at that time to me. But, um, you know, you, uh, when you work in a restaurant with the uh, cloth, tablecloths and cloth napkins you have like this linen basket yeah usually near the bus station where you take the trays of dishes and you throw the napkins in there and one of your jobs my jobs anyway as a bus boy was to take that out back to this little shed like area and then uh, i came up with a pretty pretty great idea I, I thought that i had invented which was you uh you, you go to the bar because you got to do bar runs your bar back as well it's this is florida you do it all and I would, uh, I would sometimes I would occasionally put a six pack of Michelob in the laundry basket and then uh, take it out back. And then later I would retrieve it. That's almost like a prison thing. Yes. You know, <laughs> very, you know yeah, what I mean? Like, is. oh, look, how are we going to yeah. get them out? Oh, we'll put them in the laundry. And when it wasn't the truck too comes. neat. It was like, a, <laughs> I'm going to go out in the laundry with my shiv, <laughs> my toilet wine. Right. Toilet wine. I, uh, and then a couple years later, I realized somebody else had the same idea. And a guy I had gone to high school with got arrested for doing that with VCRs. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, he worked at the mall. And he would sometimes stick a VCR out to the trash. You're not supposed to do that. No. Yeah. I, I was, uh, I remember one time, it's something that's, as I may have told the story, it scarred me. Hmm. 
uh, I was uh, I was in a I was working at Publix, and I was uh, we're shopping is a pleasure. Yes, and I was the I was a a front end help, which meant I was a bag boy, and then I was slowly being groomed to become a mm. part time stockman. And the the way that I was being groomed was by do, working in the dairy section. So you would load the milk and the eggs and all the you know yogurt and all that st- stuff, crap. And mm-hmm. I uh, I remember one time I was thinking, how could I ma- maximize my lunch hour more? Because at lunchtime we would eat. Typically, we'd go down to the deli and get them to make us a deli sandwich. And I thought, you know, instead of going and, and standing in line when it's going to be busy, when I'm going to get my break at noon, I'll spend 15 minutes in line. That's 15 minutes of my hour. I'll never get that back. Right. But if I get to work five minutes early, then I could go. There'll be no one in the line. I can get my ham and cheese. And so I did that and I put it up in the dairy cooler to keep it cold for the next three or four hours. That's so smart. You're optimizing your time. Someone accused me of stealing it. Because I had like a Coke and a sandwich in there, which I had bought. Oh. I just, I had the receipt in my pocket. Oh, that burns a person. And so the, um, the, my manager, should I say his name or withhold the name? No, by all means, you could say he's a listener. Mr. Sands. Oh, was Mis- his name Rob? No. Almost every manager I ever had was named Rob. <laughs> Mr. Sands brought me up and he's like, uh, Dan, uh, you got anything to tell me? We need to talk. Yeah, I'm like, all right, no, I don't have anything to tell you. You sure? Because this is your chance to do it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, you can do this hard or easy. Right. You can do it my way, or you can do it no way. Highway. Right. <laughs> and uh, and he's, he's like, I'm like. She got you on a pretty short leash, don't she, H.I.? <laughs> <laughs> Ever feel something pressing down? Uh, so. You don't breastfeed him, I hate you for life. <laughs> got to get your dip tat. I got to get, oh, we got to get, you haven't got his dip tat? So we uh, had a little talk, and he said I'm that name him Jason. I just love biblical names. Someone had apparently reported that they saw me taking things in there and, and keeping them. And I said, "Yeah, I said I am." I said, "Is my sandwich and my coke? I'm keeping it cold." And I like oh, some Snoopy Snoopy busybody. Yeah, and I said, uh, and he's like, uh, "Do you have a receipt for that?" I'm like, "Yeah, right here." So I handed it to him. He looks at. He's like, "Okay." He's like, "Well." In the future, could you put your food into the break room in the fridge that we have in there instead? I said, of course. And I just, just huh. sat there and we just looked at each other for a good Did you 30, burn? 30 burning? 40 seconds. Up? Yeah. Because, I mean, yeah, you know, not cool. No. Meanwhile, guess- the main dairy guy is stealing stuff off the shelves all the time. He'd go and walk by. And he'd walk down the, with, you know, take a thing of Oreo cookies and he'd take his, uh, his box cutter out and he'd just oh. rip the thing of the Oreo cookies, you know, we'd cut it and he'd be like, oh, this one is, can't be on the shelf, can't be stocked. You know, this one was damaged and he'd put it back in the back and he'd sit there eating it all afternoon. Oh, see, they call that shrinkage. Shrinkage. That's what, yeah. Shrinkage is when you get theft from within and shrinkage is a much bigger problem than shoplifting. Yeah. Yeah. Man, the public's deli. It's a good deli. Know. I don't know what the magic of the Publix Deli was, but like, uh, you know, I've said this before, but I feel like a lot of the sandwiches I get in life, I feel like they were made by someone who is maybe 
not only never eaten a sandwich, but has never had actual food. You're like, is this really, did you know this was like a, a person was going to eat this? Publix made the best subs. They had really good subs. In the, and you know what? Their fried chicken was really good. The fried chicken was great. Yes. I'm it was, just, really, it was a little sudden bit flash of, of, and they had those chicken tenders that were great too. They were so great. They were fresh. And you know, this is kind of the McDonald's situation where like, if you've got a high volume, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. The line, like, especially like, you know, working guys, guys with drywall on their pants, like showing up at, at you know twelve fifteen at a Publix, right. like there's so many people and getting the giant drink and the chips, and that line would be huge because you know Publix they they move some units. They do. I miss Publix. I really do. I I I'd probably go to the grocery store if we had a Publix. You and you'd enjoy it. I'd enjoy it. I enjoy yeah, almost the a pleasure. pleasure. Yeah, it's almost the pleasure. <laughs> yeah, they had really good stuff. I miss it. I do too. What do you What do you miss most from Florida? Publix. Yeah, me too. Just off the top of my head. Yeah. I enjoyed... Um, I miss being by the water. That's the one thing. I mean, we've got oh, a yeah. couple lakes out here, but I miss the easy access to uh, to just being able to go, not to the beach. It's not really like a beach guy, but I yeah. miss being able to go out to a lake and get on a, get on a, get on a boat really easy, a canoe. I used, to, I used to see kayak and kayak a lot. I miss that. Yeah. I, yeah, like Clearwater Beach, which was, you know... 40 minutes from my house, like probably the most beautiful beach, the sand and everything. Just, just gorgeous. You're right. Right. Um, also I, I, I really wish I wouldn't mind living near Disney world today. I think I would, I, I, I don't want to live in Orlando. I don't want to live in Kissimmee. I don't want to live in St. Cloud, but I, uh, I, I do, I would love to take my kid to Disney world. You don't have to live by it to go there. I hear. Yeah, it's pretty far away there's going to be at least one plane change. And mm. if memory serves, at least back in the day, you had to take usually American to get there. Yes, uh, I believe that that is correct. When I was doing my, uh, my fancy startup job in San Francisco and living in Florida, there was one direct flight and it was like a 6 a.m. flight there and like a 9 You got a direct flight. flight. That's amazing. And, and I, it was like a six-hour flight and it, I, I want to say... That it was That's united, amazing. but they got ah. rid of that. It's gone. It's long. Oh, gone. sure. Yeah. I mean, like it's weird because Orlando is pretty hubby and it's, it's an international airport, but in my travels, you all, depending on where you're going, you almost always had to go through Atlanta yeah. like with Delta. Everything goes through at least. Oh go yeah. Through Atlanta. That's a big hub. US Air, of course, you got to go to a Carolina. Uh, sometimes with United, you have to go through Chicago. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, mm. uh, last week we had a, uh, five-hour Virgin America flight to get to the East Coast, and it was the best. I'm going to miss Virgin America so much. Yeah. Yeah, Gruber just talked about this with M.G. Siegler on his program. Uh, you know, it's people. a lot of people don't understand all this weird coastal elite adulation for Virgin because, A, they don't fly to that many cities. I'm just repeating what John and M.G. said. But, you know, they don't fly to that many cities. Like, if you don't live or travel to... San Francisco, New York, what, L.A., right. Las Vegas, uh, D.C. I mean, there's something like 14 airports they go to. It's So, A, you've never had that experience. And, B, you're so used to the big carrier experience, which is just, I mean, obviously, you can see the headlines from the last month about, you know, what happens on our flight nowadays. Exactly. You've flown Virgin, right? Uh, never. Nope. That's one the one of the few I've never never flown. Never even seen the. It's, it's, waiting it, area. it feels like even taking away even taking away all of the things they're famous for, like their funny 
safety videos, <clears throat> taking away the mood lighting in the plane. I mean, it's just, it's, it sounds like damning with faint praise, but it's just so consistently good. Like the people who work there, like, like as with Southwest, say what you will about Southwest, the people who work there seem like night, they seem to hire like nice, patient, cool people. The Ver people who work for Virgin seem to really like it. Every seat down to the coach seat in the back by the bathroom is very comfortable and has, which sounds, you know, that sounds like a first world thing, but it sucks to be stuck in this fart tube with, with your screaming child for like eight hours and like, you know, you get some bologna in a box. <laughs> yeah. La, la, la. Yeah. But yeah, in Virgin, like you can order stuff from your seat. Like you just say, hey, bring me a seltzer water or, you know, box of bologna or whatever it is you want. Yeah, I don't know. Air travel. Oh, God, it's the worst. I'm glad you're there and back safely. Well, I'm back. I'm back. Saw some pandas. Was, did you go to Humanity Horse or? No, 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 no. We went to, my wife had a conference on the East Coast. Oh, and so, uh, I mean, it was, I mean, it wasn't exactly a vacation. I mean, you know, I guess it's kind of a vacation, but it was mainly, you know, like we might as well come along. The room is paid for. The flight is paid for. Yeah, do it. So yeah, it was really good. But now I'm back. I'm back. We we got a couple episodes to make up. That's no problem at all. No, thank you. You gotta make time. You're gonna make time to <clears throat> sure. travel and family. Well, and you know what they say: if you, if you don't meditate, travel. Because mm -hmm. life is precious, and God and the Bible. I got a question for you about yes, something. I just want to launch into please to something please. here. Mm -hmm. When I was 15 years old, I was getting my restricted driving permit. So that the way they did things back in those days, when you were 15 years old, you were allowed to drive a vehicle with someone who was 18 years or older as mm -hmm. the co-pilot. I don't know if it's still that way, but back then you didn't have to take, there wasn't like you could, you could take a driver's ed class, but you didn't have to. It was totally optional. It was mainly, I think the, the lore was that you theoretically got lower insurance rates if you take a driver's ed, I think was the appeal. Oh, uh, Okay. Because they had to give the football coach something to do, you know? <laughs> yes. All right, I'm going I'm to sit here and uh, show you a movie while I eat this uh, egg muffin off of my giant belly. I never unbuckled a dead man. <laughs> so, really? Well, yeah, like you haven't been trying very hard, <laughs> officer. All those movies. Anyways, so yeah, yeah, so yeah, I had that. Uh, 15, you get a learner's permit, a restricted license, they called it. It had to be during day, during the day. Right. And with somebody over, I want to say eight. Yeah, I feel like it was 18, not 21. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we had lower standards than the yeah. 80s. And so I, I remember going out first time my mom took me out to a parking lot and 30 seconds of me driving, not even doing anything. I mean, I didn't learn my my uh, speeding skills until later in my teens, but, mm -hmm. you know, and, and abandoned them not that long after. But I mean, this was simply like put it into drive, drive a few feet. She's like, okay, I can't do this. Nope, get out. And so she hired too, a guy. Too stressful? Too stressful for Yeah. Her? <laughs> she hired some guy and he had one of these cars. I don't know if you've ever seen one of these. <laughs> but the extra it, set of uh, yes, instruments. Yes. Yes. Yeah. The extra set of instruments. It had a steering wheel and gas and brake in the passenger side seat as well so that he could, uh, if as needed, drive from there if he had to. And he said something to me. It's perplexed me for uh, you know, damn, damn near what? 30 years now. Yeah. And he would say one of his tips was, uh, you know, I'm learning to, you when you get up to a stop sign, you want to turn, you, you stop, you put the turn signal on. And he'd say this thing, he'd say, look left, go left. Look left, mm -hmm. go left. 
Mm-hmm. But I don't know what that means. And it's for 30 years I've been trying to figure this out. Really? Was, maybe, every time maybe I turn left, I think about it. Huh. Oh, that's terrible. Every Look time left, but he was really pissy about it. Look left, go left. Okay. I Like I was I doing mean, it I, wrong. Oh, I don't know. I mean, my interpretation of that is very, very simple, which is just that make sure you look when it, when it is time to turn after you've checked all your points, uh, right. look in the direction where you're going, especially on a left. Left is a hazardous turn. UPS don't simple. make left turns. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I've, told, I've been told that. Yeah. I mean, when I was a kid in the crossing the street days, they would always say, what did they say? They say, look both ways before you cross the sure. street. Now, now, something I learned later on that we've adapted, and I'm trying to drill into my daughter, like since before she could talk, is you look left, you look right, you look left. You know, especially here with the hills, because there could be a car coming over a hill. Or like in the case of anywhere where there's parallel parking, like you never know what some dingling is going to do. Right. So, you know, look left, look left, turn left. Is that it? Look left, go left. Look left, go left. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I, having that second set of pedals and stuff, I, I, I get why you'd want that, like especially if the person's like a maniac and you're really concerned that they're going to do something dangerous yeah. and maybe you know, do a, run a Christopher Walken, you know, from Annie Hall. I do. But, but so good. Uh, I love it. I love that. I love, the, love the, when they pan and you see the expression on their faces. It's oh, so good. It's so great. Am I going to have to go watch that thing now? I got to go watch it. Actually, I, I have uh, Marshall McLuhan right here. <laughs> Wouldn't it be great if life was like that? <laughs> <laughs> you, uh, you misunderstand my work completely. How you got a job anywhere is amazing to me. Um, but, uh, but you know, it's, I don't know. It seems a little bit like keeping your kid in one of those walkie stroller things. Like eventually they've got to like take steps. I don't know. When we did it in driver's ed, we had these, uh, God, these bottom of the line. Was it Chrysler K cars? They were these super cheap sedans. And they'd be, you'd be packed in. There'd be like five people in the car when you go to the course to drive. And it was, you know, it was a closed course. We weren't driving around in public. But most of what we did was watch movies and take tests. And then like I think once a week we'd go somewhere and you'd get to drive the car for, you know, 10 minutes and then you'd switch. But I just remember being jammed into these cars, which of course had no air conditioning mm. because they were as cheap as possible. Oh my God. And like just being, you're like sitting there sweating between two girls. And it's like, oh my God, what does my life come to? doesn't sound all bad. So, so much shame. So much shame. That's a good, uh, look, look left, go left. Look left, go left. Look left, go left. Hmm. Now it's going to bother me too. Yeah. What does he mean by that? What do it mean? Weird dude. Dan, um, they're back. They're back. uh, They're back. The, the people with the guests are definitely. Oh yeah. This has been a huge week. We have been hit hard with this stuff. Yeah, um, it seems like it kind of was slowing down and almost going away, and now there's just a new wave yeah. of this. Yep. And sometimes on the various slacks we're on, we'll we'll share these dingling experiences with each other, and you know, it, it, it perhaps unsurprisingly, you know, uh, Mike Hurley and Marco, and you and me have all gotten the same, like the Facebook advertising expert with 15 years of experience, <laughs> right? Even though Facebook hasn't been around 15 years, let's not worry about that. Uh, everybody got the, hey, I love your show you do about subject. Uh, you should have this guy on to talk about Facebook advertising. Mm-hmm. It's so strange. And Marco, so what they do at ATP is they, you know, it's nice to have a clean 
feedback address that we like we have, right? Yeah. A clean and perhaps easily guessable feedback. You know, if you want to send email to us, here's the email address. But what they, they switch it out every once in a while. And once one gets burned yeah. and like starts showing up on dingling lists, they iterate or uh, whatever the word would be. They basically change a number in the email address oh, and I just see. kill off the other one. Right. It's not very pretty, but like, I don't know. And I'm not even sure that it makes that big of a difference. I'm going to implement that. God, who all have we gotten? It's funny because like, you know, like, first of all, like, once again, once again, so much nice email from people. Uh, really, really sweet email. One guy just wrote this, just in the subject line said he liked the show. No yeah. message. That's no all message. I want to say. That's it. Out. So super nice. I always want to say thank you to everybody. I encourage anybody who wants to say that they like us to do that because I'm broken inside. Let's see. What do we got here? Uh, what this company is doing differently to become a digital powerhouse. Let's see. Oh, they want us to have Florian on. Uh, we get, uh, oh, fierce conversations. Uh, Susan Scott, she wants to be on the show. Facebook advertising expert. Uh, what else we got here? Oh, this is this one was, I, I, I love this one. Uh, Mark Cuban slash David oh, Goliath. Oh, yes, yes. Hi, Dan. And also later, hi, Merlin. In a separate email, can a startup created by a millennial disrupt the whole banking industry? Innovative app helping save money in overdrafting fees. I don't think that's what they're called. Um, been backed by various superstar investors, including uh, Mark Cuban and Diplo, whatever a Diplo is. That sounds like a child's card game, but I guess that's an investor. Anyway, Dave will be launching April 25th. We want to have him on. Thank you, Danielle. I'm telling yes. you, I still feel like if that that what we need to do, or I somebody, me, somebody else, would be to do a show, and mm-hmm. that the whole point of the show is just to bring all of these people on. Oh, I, I, I mean, it would be a little bit like Sasha Baron Cohen, where it would be hard to pull off for long. But we could certainly, I mean, we're already kind of douchebags. I feel like I could utterly inhabit the character of a douchebag and, and keep it up pretty well for a I while. Know, yeah, I, hope, I think you could. I think, I think yeah, it would be you. worth, <clears throat> I think it would be worth doing. Go from stress to strong, health and fitness advice from high achievers. It's pubbing later this month. Mm, she rebounded from burnout and got serious about taking charge of her health. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so thank you to... Everybody who wants to be on our show about pound sign productivity, that's all good news. A uh, quick, uh, <clears throat> quick bit of promotion. It is here once again this Thursday night, April 27th, the Ungainly X-Man meetup number 16. Already a new one back, a new one. <clears throat> you know, we scheduled the last one while we were still having the last one. That, that's how we roll now. Wow. So please come out. If you're around on this Thursday, April 27th, please come out to Two Cats Comics, 320 West Portal Avenue, San Francisco. And uh, it's a fun uh, fun event to hang out, visit with people, make some new friends. Uh, you can talk about comics or or not. It doesn't really matter. It's just a bunch of nice, friendly people. And uh, I would be very happy if you wanted to come out. And then you can buy me a drink after. But I, I got to get to bed early. I got stuff to do. I got stuff to do. People appreciate that, I think. They, <clears> they feel get a little it. bit. There's too many events. I have too many events, too many places to be. My, which is like really any number of places to be. Yeah. Yeah, it's too much. Events, events, events. No, I hear it. But but this one, this is a good one. I mean, I, I took this, I took this gladly with a cheerful heart. <clears throat> Dan, in as much as you're able to say, where would people find show notes for <laughs> episode? 
diggity. 320. 320, 320, dude. Spark a doobie with Dan and Merlin. We only have 100 more till we can really pull that joke off. That's right. Douchebaggery from the French. We're sitting down today with one of the foremost Facebook advertising experts, over 15 years of experience, presaged the whole idea of Facebook. Uh, where would people find show notes for episode 320 of your Back to Work program? 5by5.tv slash B as in boys, 2 as in the number, W as in wild. Wild. Slash 320. I got to see, uh, I got to see pandas. Yeah, the, you mentioned that before. They won't, oh they don't save God. themselves. They won't, oh, they won't so... copulate. Oh, oh, yeah, you know, we got to see the crate that, uh, was it Sing Sing or Ling Ling? I don't want to be ping pong. But whenever the, uh, the OG, the original uh, gangster panda came over in the 70s from the China, that crate is on display. But we got to see some really cute, I got some cute videos of a panda scratching itself with its leg. They mostly sit around and eat bamboo. Really? Oh, yeah. They're, they're real, real torpid. And then they sit down, they fall on their bottom. It's so cute. Uh, good zoo. Uh, so the podcast people meet up. Dan, do you have any other follow up? Uh, copyright uh, John Syracuse, two thousand eleven. I don't. I don't think so. <clears throat> I don't know. I'm feeling good about the show so far, so I don't want to jinx it. Oh, really? This show? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I feel pretty good about it too. Uh, and you got you got do you have Shucky Jivey for uh for maybe the uh. You have ideas for things to talk about. I do. I mean, I have some ideas. I have some uh, a couple things I've been thinking about, and uh, CBD oil, other things we can go into, depending on what you want. CBD do. oil, okay. The oil. Oh, oh, oh! I know what I got to do. I, I've, well, if, with your permission for E three twenty, I'd like to address a listener question. I, I have prepared. Yeah, I'd love to hear it. Let's do it. Go check the show notes, and I found this myself using the Google article on the Atlantic called "The Next Gluten." Plant proteins called lectins are an emerging source of confusion and fear. Okay. And so this is a book written by, I'm sure, a preeminent scientist uh, called The Plant Paradox. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. No processed food, low right. sugar. For readers who are experiencing cravings, digestive issues, headaches, brain fog, lack of energy, aching joints, morning stiff stiffness, <laughs> morning stiffness <clears throat> morning stiffness adult acne or a host of other conditions you just can't shake hmm. americans uh, the, the gluten-free diets he's saying what if what if what if uh what if we're missing the root of the problem and the okay. root of the problem literally literally is plants oh man mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i hate plants i've been telling everyone this why do people keep eating them hmm the book itself is equally severe. It whips readers in the Atlantic. It whips readers back and forth between hyperbolic claims of danger and Ted-style cliches that confer a sense of superiority upon believers, a promise of being privy to life-altering secrets. Suppose that in the next few pages, I told you that everything you thought you knew about your diet, your health, and your weight is wrong. Every, um, everything? Okay. All right. Well, I mean, most things. Yeah. No, you know, I'm always open to changing my mind, theoretically. So that's that. That's in show notes. Uh, you can learn about uh, the problems with lectin. How do you solve a problem like these lectins? Oh, introduce my daughter to Seinfeld. Already? Or Sunfield, as she calls it. She's not too and, for that. You get on me about showing my nine-year-old Logan, but you're showing her Seinfeld. That's adult. Just, just to be super clear, you are making an equivalency 
between the R-rated movie Logan and people sitting in a Chinese restaurant for 30 minutes. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I would. So you're thinking of the contest probably, right? The contest for sure and the showering with the vegetables and... The the raciest one we've seen, I wanted to start her off on uh, S2. So basically, we had been in a hotel room and uh, they show Sunfield uh, for like two hours in the evenings and she got really into it. And I was, you know, explaining a little, mansplaining a little bit about the characters and stuff, but she loves Kramer. The edgiest one so far is from the very funny episode where George decides that he wants to be able to eat uh, during intercourse. That's and so the best. Eating. Yeah, but it's it's done very tastefully. So he likes to have a sandwich, and then he wants to watch TV, and yeah. <laughs> George, what are you doing? Pleasuring you? <laughs> I mean, but think about it. You want to watch TV. You yeah. want to watch TV. You want to you want to make love, and you want to have a sandwich, a hoagie. I know. You're living the dream. It's the dream. Yeah, yeah. Have you ever tried that? Which, all of those? Yeah. Um, I mean, probably. I mean, I don't think I ever set it, set myself to it as like a, a goal or project. But uh, sure, I've, you know, I've had food around. I'll have a sip of water. I don't really do sex things. I, um, I'm very time constrained. Mm. You know, I'll just have a good shower and go to bed. You know, maybe watch some YouTube. Oh my God. I put something in show notes. I discovered this. So, okay. Can, can I do one quick d- diversion? Yeah, go ahead, Colin. Thank you. Thank you. First time YouTuber. Um, so you use Twitter sometimes, right? Yes. Okay. I mean, have you ever seen this? I, I had trouble articulating this. So I was trying to ex- discuss this yesterday on Twitter, ironically enough, but I've noticed a phenomenon that I can't quite understand and I'm trying to figure out. And when I, when I describe it, it makes, I, I sound like I'm dumb and don't understand things, but, but bear with me. For example, like I, I have a friend who I know to be like a good person and not the kind of person who buys social media, uh, followers and engagements. Right. I'm pretty sure. But pretty much every time my friend tweets, he gets almost exactly plus or minus 10 he gets almost exactly 50 immediate hearts on everything he tweets. Interesting. And my wife and I both noticed this independently. And we're like, what's up with that? That seems strange because mm. he's, a, I mean, he's a good friend of mine. And it doesn't seem like something where he would be purchasing that. And then so, of course, I do my own detective work. I get in, you know, do some of my own like Alex Jones due diligence. Like right, I'm going to actually, right. you know, really get into the pizza place and check it out. Sure. I start going in and looking at the people and, and there's nothing on the face of it that looks similar just from the icons. It's not all boobs and butts. It's all different kinds of things. But then when you drill down, you click on their timeline, I guess you call it, you notice that and you go, hmm, okay, this person retweets a lot of things about Romanian health powders. That's interesting. And then you go look at somebody else and it's like, oh, this person also retweets a lot of things mm-hmm. about Romanian health powders. And, you, and then, oh, and also there's this one thing that this hip hop performer I've never heard of tweeted that almost like, like over half of these 50 people have also retweeted. You know, so, you know what I'm saying? There's a, there's a real sameness yeah. to these patterns. Now on the face of it, like if I, it's, the Occam's razor, the, the true Occam's razor here is my friend uh, is buying likes for his tweets, which I know is a thing you can do. Yes. I also know that you can buy followers and I know that you can buy, I think you can at least theoretically buy engagements. And those are all three different things. A follower is somebody who theoretically is watching what you do on a social media service. That is a metric. Another metric is how often your stuff is liked or hearted. Another metric, the super important metric in some ways is 
you know, what people really look at is engagements. Like, did they click on this? Did they reply to this? Did they do anything? Mm -hmm. And as I'll get to in a second with this wonderful video a woman sent me yesterday, you know, you can notice these patterns of something going wrong or weird when there's a very high level of liking and hearting and a comparatively super low level of organic engagement, if you know what I mean. And so I was just turning this over in my head. I'm sorry, this is really boring, but I, I, I was kind of obsessing over this. I don't want to call my friend and go, hey, did you buy followers? That's kind of weird. Right. I know buying followers is a thing. I block every one of those buy followers, you know, dinglings on, on Twitter. But I was just really wondering, like, what do you think the transaction, if, if, you, if you feel like I've described this well, and we assume for a moment that my friend is not somebody buying these things, like, what is that just a matter of those are total bot accounts, B-O-T, yeah. accounts that are bought, B-O-U-G-H-T. Right. Are those just bots where people are feeding desired activities into them? Are those quote unquote real accounts that have rented access to their timeline, to services? Right. Uh, and who is paying whom for the transactions that I'm seeing there? Like, and why is, and so the, the second Occam's razor is my friend has not bought followers and it's just that these are probably generating likes as noise to turn you away from their their deeper thing. You know what I mean? There's it's yeah. like if you only use Tor for top secret stuff, it's not that useful because it seems really suspicious. If you use Tor for everything, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Same same thing here. Like it it just what do you what do you think is happy? Have you have you seen this happen? Have you seen this occur in the wild? I what I have seen is more on Instagram, I'm not, I'm sure oh, that, sure. I, but, but like that, it seems like there's some, sometimes someone will post and instantaneously, whether it's 50 or a hundred or whatever likes on that. Um, and in some cases, yeah, the person has a hundred thousand or a million followers or whatever, then it kind of makes sense. But I have seen it where somebody does that and then in, instantaneously the likes are there when they only have a couple thousand followers. And I don't, right. I don't Something know. that seems like off balance. I mean, the, yeah. the, the classic is, I'll tell you a really weird one, is if you see a tweet, because I think it's fair to say that regardless of how um, popular you are on social media, or like in the case of Twitter in particular, there will generally be many more hearts than retweets for something. Retweets yeah. are something kind of bigger. But like there are times where you'll see something and this is this actually does happen. You'll see something that has hundreds, hundreds of retweets and zero hearts, which is very suspicious. That seems very strange to me. Yeah, you know what, what I mean? Think, yeah. What do you think that means? I think in those cases, those are bot engagements, purchased engagements. But what by I, bots. I mean, what are people doing that for, really? Like, what's the end goal if they don't really count for anything? One theory is that, like, with, with a lot of these things, like these health powders and stuff, that a lot of it is affiliate links. So, like. You know, you'll see if you go and God, God save you. If you go and look at any trending Twitter thing, you will see all this noise. First of all, it'll be the Donald Trump bots that are just adding that, you know, tag to get visibility. But also you'll see tons of affiliate links for things. Like when if anything ever goes wrong with my um, Instacart or I'm wondering if the service is down, uh -huh. you know, I'm, I'll try it right now. You just go and go and search for Instacart on Twitter and what you're going to see, as with Uber, is you're just going to see tons of people saying, hey, get this much off by clicking on this link. Yeah. So, I mean, aff affiliate in the sense of, you know, here's my code. I get, yeah, see? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
and then affiliate stuff in terms of the thin affiliate stuff of like, well, this is like an Amazon affiliate link or in this case, Romanian powders. But I, I want to mention, I want to first of all credit, give me just a second to give proper credit here. Uh, someone who was nice enough to respond to this uh, was a Twitter user whose name is coming very soon as I, I'm not doing this well at all. Okay, here we go. Here we go. Yeah. Uh, Twitter user. I'll, I'll oh, have it all out in, in post. Don't worry. Really? Yeah, of course. You'll do that? Oh, of course. No one, this show will never air. Twitter user uh, Angela Brett, thank you very much, uh, provided a really, I, this is, this sounds like something you don't need to watch, but it is improbably fascinating. Um, when I said, I said, uh, so I had said, I asked because I've seen friends tweets get this weird attention. Is that just bots generating noise to seem quote normal? Angela Brett from the internet responds to say, apparently that's what Facebook bots do. So I wouldn't be surprised. She provides a link to a really interesting YouTube video on a really good channel uh, called Veritasium. And the, the title of it is Facebook fraud. And I don't want to spoil this for you. It's like a 10 minute video that I really recommend watching. This guy's very good. And basically it's about the purchasing through gray, white or gray hat uh, methods of getting getting likes on Facebook. And uh, the only small spoiler I'll give is, gosh, it sure does seem like a lot of these interactions and clicks are coming from this fairly small number of countries. Even when you target for the US and the UK, a lot of that activity and anyway, it's it's like it's interactions all the way down. There's all kinds of weird stuff going on. And anyway, I just really recommend the video. You can find it uh, for yourself by searching on uh, YouTube for Facebook fraud by user Veritasium. Anyway, sorry, that was a big derail. I don't think about this stuff that much, but it, it it's just there's that part of my mind uh, that just I, I always wonder how a, a thing works. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I'm. I mean, it's there's a lot of it seems silly, but there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes there. And as far as like someone like you, you've got a ton, a ton, a ton of followers. Most of them, I think, yes. Okay, yes. Mm -hmm. You used to always say, ah, oh, they're just they're just bots, but I do, I don't think they are bots. And I was on the list of for a while. I was on the list of here's somebody you might want to follow. Oh, like when when you, when signed, you up. signed up for Twitter, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm not on that list anymore. Uh, but I, I was nice of them to do that. I didn't ask for that. But like, and I never got it at the level of like a Sween, like like uh, Jason Sweeney, like he was on like the super and like Rob Corddry. They're on like the super duper. Right. Like here, just click to add all of these people we think you'd like. I'm thank God I was never on that list. But um, but that's where a lot of I mean, who knows how many of those accounts are bots or just disused accounts. Right. It's not anything I feel comfortable bragging about because I don't think it's meaningful. I think my actual number of real people is probably 50,000, maybe. It's not as high as it looks. But uh, no, but you're absolutely right. So much goes on behind the scenes. And again, slight spoiler for that video because I know most of you won't watch it. Is this guy, this the guy who did this video, he had done, he had, what did he said? So he, basically, he wanted more attention, basically bought like Facebook ads advertisements for something he had done and he saw a lot of activity that he thought seemed suspicious and thought it was like really squirrely and then now, now there have been these experiments where for example people have gone and set up a like a, a dummy page that says only an idiot would like this page like and it's a picture of a cat and like if you buy these engagements there's all these engagements you'll get on that page or all these likes but very low engagement and they all come from like egypt or they come from you know certain countries 
But then what he discovered was even when he kind of like rethought what he had done, it, you can't like undo those likes yeah. and faves. There's no way at scale to say, get rid of all of those. And so there's all this detritus out there. There's all this like, you wonder how, how much of what between the muting and the, you know, the, the, the block unblock and all the different things that we do to keep our life manageable. Like you, I wonder how much like <laughs> real anything is going on on Twitter. And you know, you need look no further than trending tags to go like, Oh my God, this, there's, there's so much garbage here. And I don't think in two ways, I, I don't mean to ascribe malice here, but I think there's at least two ways in which it does not benefit Twitter to be better about that. You know, one is that that would result in fewer users, you know, or fewer accounts, fewer whatever. And that's certainly, that's something they're evaluated by. They probably, they do have like, um, what do you call it? MAUs or whatever. You have the monthly engagements. And, but second, like, why would you use precious resources? B, why would you use precious resources to like get rid of something that ends up potentially being a metric by which you're evaluated? Right. So I don't think they have that much incentive to spend time on this. I used to think they did, but you know, now they'd rather spend the resources on changing, screwing up the way replies work rather than like fixing the, like, how about editing a tweet for 10 minutes? Like that would be a nice thing to have. Anyway. Good video. Bots. Bots. Yeah. I mean, you know, this is why we can't have nice things. Yeah, I think there's definitely something that people want. I mean, it's always neat to know that you have an audience and that your audience is growing and that you're, you know, you're able to, oh, this thing that I think that I want to share with my audience, that, that audience, there's 50 people, there's 5,000 people, there's 500,000 people, 5 million people. The bigger your audience, I think the the more influential you feel, even if that audience is completely disengaged. I forget what percentage... There was that big thing when Twitter released those tools that allowed people to see exactly how their tweets were being uh, being read and how often they were being read and and by yeah, you can you can go to analytics right I mean, there's the analytics section you can go to I think that kind of showed people how easy it is to miss a tweet how easy it how how rarely your tweets are actually going to be seen by people and I'm always amazed. Yes based on the time of day how many people will respond to something and i've i've experimented with this not in any kind of serious way where i'm i'm confident yet in drawing any kind of real conclusion but it, it seems like if you ask a question or make a statement about something that's relevant to this is my theory about something that's relevant to what someone might be doing at that particular time of day you will get a better response example if mm -hmm. I say, I have just finished watching such and such a TV show, I'd like something else kind of like that. What do you recommend? If I ask that at 9 or 10 in the morning, I will get very few responses to it. But if I ask it during the time that you might be watching that show, like 8 or 9 at night, I will get lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of responses. Now, maybe that's simply people are home from work and they're doing their second screen thing while they're watching TV. Who knows? But right. it, it also seems like, you know, if I make a certain kind of an Instagram post at a certain time of day, I will get more responses about it. Even silly things that seem obvious, like if I'm posting mm -hmm. a, a picture of this awesome barbecue lunch that I'm having and I post it at like noon, I'll get more responses than if I posted it too. 
because people are at their desk right. hungry or something, you know, but like little things like that. But it's so also, it would be weird to post that at four in the morning. Oh, it, by the way, here's what I had for lunch. Yeah, it would be. That, would, but, that seems a little needy. Yeah. But, but you know, uh, like the whole idea of of tweeting and realizing most of your audience is is never going to see that tweet. And then what do you do if you want to like promote something like, hey, here's a fireside coupon, you know, like podcasters to get 20% off. I don't want to like flood my followers with that because I imagine mm-hmm. there's a lot of people who are who are interested in podcasting who follow me, but there's probably the majority of people are, they don't really care about that and they don't want to see me like repeatedly tweet. And that's why I, I never understand people who, I feel like you have to have something to get away with that, to get away with that kind of promotion or self-promotion yeah. of something. And I always feel a little bit weird about that. And I don't know if I'm... It feels a little, it feels a little like you're abu- abusing... Your, your privilege of having an audience in a way. Kind of. Yeah. Nah, I, I think everybody, everybody is struggling with that or should be struggling with that. Cause it, it is, it's hard to know. And, and, it, and, you know, in my case, like I, and you and I have talked about this, like I'm not, my feelings about, for example, tweeting about a podcast have really changed. Um, How so? Over the years. Oh, well, I mean, anybody who wants to know about our show probably knows about our show. Yeah. And me, trying to power through that by like pooping everything I do into my feed and going, you know, please go do this or like, you know, I mean, I don't know. I mean, so, so a couple things. One is that I, I'm going to reveal something that uh, I'm very interested in doing more with that I think is a smarter strategy. Okay. So, you know, the, the impulse or like what I do and actually what I have done and what I still mostly do is like, for example, with Roderick on the line, as soon as the show goes up, I do the, the, the most white bread, we do this for do by Friday for every show where I'm responsible for this part of it. I do a very white bread. Like here is the show title. Here is the title of the episode and the number. And then here is like the topic or whatever. And here is the link. Um, now, okay. So why do I do that? Well, I do that partly because I guess there's always the chance that somebody who listens to the show isn't subscribed, but really is that, you know, is that really effective? I mean, how many new people, how often do you go and look at a podcast based on just seeing, go listen to a podcast that you've never heard before, never heard of before, based on the fact of, uh, based on the existence of the kind of tweet I just mentioned. For me, very rarely. Yeah. Because why? Like, why would I, why would I do that? So, I mean, I continue to do that because it just feels like a thing you are supposed to do. But like, I think, and I've kind of picked this up from reading Max Temkin's uh, list of uh Twitter politics people, they, they are, I think, somewhat smart about this. They do a couple things, uh, one of which is absolutely white hat and the other of which is a little more experimental. But okay. so part of my, my emerging strategy for this, and I'm revealing my strategy here is, you know what, how about instead, yeah, sure, whatever. If you're on the official Twitter account for that thing, tweet the white bread link. That's cool. Like diehard fans will favorite that. That's nice. Uh, maybe you could retweet that from your personal account. Sure, that's fine. I'm not sure how effective that is. You know, what I think is probably more effective is for a show like Roderick or Do By Friday kind of our show is to wait a day and like you'll discover what people liked about the show. You'll discover like in the case of Do By Friday, like what is the bit that really grabbed people? Max does not want to have to talk to people about his groceries. Like that was very, very funny. And we knew that that was a funny thing. You know, uh, Alex Jones and his powders. Uh, the, you know, the fat berg full of diaper wipes, all these different things that we realized didn't know at the time it went up would be the thing people liked. 
So this, this sounds weird, but I think it makes more sense for me to wait a day and then tweet something that says that basically is addressing the fans who've already listened to the show rather than imagining that somebody who has never heard the show will be interested based on this white bread thing. Right. So in some ways, having an inside joke, I think you're much more likely to then have your, your listeners and potential fans do the heavy lifting for you. They'll Smart. retweet that because they get the joke. That was funny to them. And they might what, quote it and go, yeah, this was a good one or whatever. That's actually, I think, probably more effective at, because now, I mean, don't you, I mean, I really, I learn about stuff from my friends. Having my friends just retweet, retweet the white bread link is not uh, that useful. But having them go, oh, I love this. This is, the, this is why I like this episode. This is why I like this program. It's I love the why. Like you're, you're hitting on something important when you talk about the why. And that is, for me, I've, I've so many times seen people say, this is great, or love this thing. And a lot of the time, I, I would, if, I'm, if I find I'm interested in it, I'll reply to the person and I'll say, why? Because I feel like on Twitter, you are, if you're going to talk about something that you like, I don't feel, I know it's hard in 140 characters, but I don't feel like it's enough to say, I really like this. Okay, why did you really like it? Give me right. one thing. Great effects, great special effects, or I love racing movies, or whatever it is that you're recommending. Like, give me a little hint about why. Or in my you've... case, trying to save you the time, the Dan, t- exactly. by saying, don't watch Doctor Who. Stop asking about Doctor Who. You obviously don't really want to watch Doctor Who, and if you do watch it, you're really not going to like it. I'm really trying to save you time, right? because I think you're just going to frustrate yourself. You need your friends. Your friends are your Amazon recommendation engine. People out there who know you well enough to say, you will, you know, you will like this in the same way as like those old music matching services. Like, hey, you know, if you like Archers of Loaf, you're probably really going to like Small. Like, there's a pretty good chance if you like this, you'll like that. Like, if you like Parks and Rec, you're probably going to like The Office, right? There's all these ways where your friends can be that kind of collaborative filter for you. But you need that why is what you're saying, right? Yeah, I think so. And it, 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 well, it helps. It helps. But I like, you know, like, a lot of the time that the thing that I've seen, I've seen you do it. I've seen other people do it when they're releasing a podcast. They'll say, this is a good one for me. That's like, well, we're the, we're the other ones crap then. Or, you well, know, I, like I do that for a very specific reason, which is that and I'm know, not, I've seen, are, I've seen lots of people do it. Maybe they're aping you or well, something. I, I can, no, no, I can tell you why. Well, first of all, I mean, I'm kind of, I'm kind of copying the Andre Torres or Metafilter, this is good line. I'm kind of co-opting that a little bit. But no, here's why I do it for our show. Our show's been around for a really long time. Yeah, People have listened to it. People have stopped listening to it. Sometimes they start listening to it. But everybody is busy. And at some point, almost, I mean, I can't tell you how much of my day I spend. And you understand, I listen, I ain't fronting. I listen to so many podcasts. But if I've been away for two days and then, you know, the slate feed pops up with like 16 new podcasts and just, I'm forever like deleting stuff and then I for, just forget about it. Right. That, people do that with our show and that's okay because that's, that's how it works is that you have to follow your attention to the things that reward you. Uh, and it's not, and we're not allowed to be butt hurt because we happen to fall off your radar screen for whatever reason. Like if you just don't like the show, that's totally okay. With that said, I think what I can do, and I don't know if this works, but I, I have friends who don't listen to every show I do, which is totally healthy. But I do feel like it is helpful to say, like, if you have liked this show in the past, right. this would be a good one to return to. I'm not, I'm not begging like you to do anything. It's more a way of saying, like, if you're not listening to every episode, this, rep, to me, represents uh, what, what can make this particular program 
good. But you know what? Here's a really dumb thing. If I tweet a few times about, let's say I come up with a new podcast method episode, and I've experimented with this. If I tweet about it twice a day for three or four days, the number of downloads in some cases can, it'll be at least a third or if not a half more. Really? Yes, and that's the You're weird. Kidding. No, it's a See, huge I don't, I don't difference. Get, I don't get. I don't get that. It's at only all. that one show that I can do that with. Yeah, okay. and I don't. That, I don't know why. It's like, very I, weird. I, I, I've actively. I would actively like to get more listeners for probably two shows that I do. More of the right listeners. Like I don't care. The wrong listeners can keep keep doing whatever. But right. I know there are people out there that would really enjoy do by do by Friday that aren't listening to it because the ones who like it really like it a lot. Um. But no, you're, you're, that's, that is super interesting to me. Cause like, there's always the kind of like uh slash dot back in the day, those, yeah. those kind of spikes in activity, but you know, the real metric, anybody who was a blogger back in the day, you could, you know, you could get server crashing traffic from right. some sites that right. had zero impact on the number of subscribers, on the number of people who stuck around after anybody who discovered it as more than the, like the flavor of the day. Um, but you know, a link from somebody like and back in the again back in the day, Kotki Gruber, that could, especially with Kotki, you would get really interesting new people learning about what you do because right. that taste filter had said, right, "This is cool. Check this out." Now here's an, here's another thing to your point though. Another thing I picked up from that politics list, and I find I still find this a little bit unsavory, but I'm very interested in it. So on the one hand, there is the classic clickbait sort of like you know I ate nothing but styrofoam for a month, and you won't believe what happened. Right. There's those those kinds of things. But like, you know, or the, the sort of, I don't know if you want to say BuzzFeed or uh, who pioneered these, but those sort of like, you know, uh, this man hadn't seen his dog. I talked to this man who hadn't seen his dog in a year or something like that. And those, those can be very catchy because it's very good at getting your attention and saving the payoff for the end of the line. Yeah. But you know, one thing I see people doing a lot and I'm kind of interested in trying somewhere is... So somebody like a, so somebody who's writing for the New York Times or Washington Post or CNN or somewhere, they'll have within a very short period of time, two to five different tweets that all link to the same thing. And the first few times I saw this, I was like, "This is garbage! Like, this is so gross." But I see the method to their madness, and I want, I think it might work. I don't know if I want to do this on my personal account, but they'll frequently say, "You know, my new my new piece." On Trump's uh, inaugural donors is up now at abc.io. Uh -huh. Then you have another one that goes, you know, surprising revelations uh, from crowdsourced research on Trump's inauguration. Or another one might be, you know, and, but you, you basically, it's almost like the way HuffPo A-B tests their headlines. You end up giving people different things to latch on to. Like if somebody who feels particularly strongly about crowdsourced research, they might retweet that one, yeah. right? Yep. So somebody else might want to just focus on the like, I hate Trump stuff. And so that becomes the one. Anyway, I'm not saying I want to do it, but I think it's a very interesting idea. Dan, I'm sorry, I'm blathering on. Did you want to tell me about anything you like? You know what? I would like to start uh, by telling you about uh, Squarespace. Squarespace! You're familiar with those those guys, right? <laughs> familiar with shit, man. What sorry. are you doing? No, I mean, what are you doing? No. Tell me about it. Be honest. No, you know, lean in. I say, oh my goodness, Squarespace. I, I use them all the time. I have many things. My uh, MerlinM.com slash meetup page is on Squarespace. The entire, entire Roderick on the line 
podcast all lives on Squarespace. I have worked with these people for years, and I am a, I'm a fan and a true believer. Tell me, give me some of the F's and B's about Squarespace. What, what do people need to know about this? Here's what they need to know. They need to know that you're going to get beautiful award-winning designer templates there, and you're going to be able to customize these to make your site look completely different from every other Squarespace site without any kind of HTML experience, any kind of CSS experience. Do whatever you want to do by changing look and feel, but you do it with these little simple tweaks. You don't have to even type numbers in. They have sliders for everything. You want the font bigger, slide a little bit bigger. You want to change the colors, use a little color picker. You see what I'm saying? I do. Beautiful stuff. And little, I would call it not, not precisely a widget, but there's little chunks of funk, as I like to say. Little chunks nice. of functionality. You drop it on the page, you do your business, and then you get on with your life and work. I love that. You don't have to worry about any of these details. You have to worry about installing like patches and security stuff. You just, you just go with it. They've got people. They've got people whose job literally is to sit there staring at screens so you don't have to stare at the screens. Mm. 20, Boy, that's, yeah, that's, that's important outsourcing. 24-7 customer support. They're there. You send them an email. They write you back. You don't have to worry. And that's the thing about it is think about that. Think about not having to be concerned or worried about something. Think about not having to sit up at night saying, is the website going to be ready? Will it be able to do the things that I want? I have a friend of mine who just started, uh, he's, he's had an online business forever. And he's been basically manually, you know, using some other software, some other package to manually update everything. And he was talking about this new website redesign, all the stuff it's going to be able to do. And I'm like, that sounds really good. Did you check out Squarespace before you decided to build all this? He's like, oh, I'm not building it. I'm using Squarespace. And that's the thing. Like wow. you can do the e-commerce stuff. It's all built in. You can, you can do pretty much anything, whether image gallery hosting, like you mentioned podcasting, you name it, you can do it with Squarespace and you can focus on the thing that you actually want to be doing which is probably not making a website. So go to squarespace.com. The offer code you're going to want to use is one word. It's your show. And you'll get 10% off your first purchase and you'll be showing support for back to work. And don't forget that uh, there's always somebody who hasn't heard of Squarespace, even though you as a listener probably have. There's a lot of people who haven't. And you can enlighten them and you can give them that code. And uh, it's okay if they didn't hear it right from us on the show. They can still Mm -hmm. use the code 10% off. It's your show. Thanks very much to squarespace.com for supporting Back to Work with Merlin Mann. I'm looking at a page here, accepting Apple Pay. Accepting Apple Pay. That's On great. Squarespace. You know, the thing is, like, uh, I, I don't know all the details of their implementation of it. Basically, you do Apple Pay via Stripe. But, like, man, once you start doing Apple Pay on websites, it everything else, with all due respect to anybody who doesn't, it just seems mental. Like, there's somewhere I went and I wanted to buy a shirt. I just want to buy a shirt. Now, you know what it was? It was I wanted to buy my daughter a pair of uh, shoes. And uh, there's a pair of shoes she liked that she's going to outgrow. And I knew exactly, you know, which ones I wanted to get, what size to get. And there were so many pages to get through. Like, first, you like, do you want to be happy, register or come in as a guest? I'm like, oh, I don't want to be a guest. Like, oh, I don't need an account at, you know, J Random Store. Right. But, like, you got to enter in. First of all, you know, you, you got it in the in the cart, you know. And then you got to fill in your billing information, like your address and stuff like that. You put in your credit card. That's another page. You know, is this the same address? I mean, oh, shipping, all that stuff. And like, I remember the, wasn't more than a couple months ago, the first time I did Apple Pay 
uh, on a Safari, using Safari on the phone. And the thing is, like, guess what? Number one, you don't have to enter in any payment information. Nope. It does that. But you know what else? It also includes your shipping information. Like, it's all right. It really is like a couple clicks. I just, it just drives me, it drives me bananas how many places don't take Apple Pay. And that drives me crazy. But, and I understand why I think it's partly that everybody's got their own systems. The fact that Target doesn't do this is mental to me. So Target won't take Apple Pay, but like your local bodega probably does. And they may not even know it. That's crazy. We're at our hotel. I want to get my wife uh, a Diet Coke. I pay with my watch. Like <laughs> that's all I have to do is, is go click on the little dingus and then bing, I bought, you know, uh, a bottle of Coke. That it's just, it's strange to me where it is and is not accepted. And then also in the implementation, it's crazy because one thing you'll discover if you're using Apple Pay, whether it's your watch phone, whatever, like on the one hand, yes, it is, it is mental how many places have the ability to do Apple Pay and don't know it. Like the cashier doesn't know it. There's several things about that that are super interesting. One is that people haven't asked or used it enough for them to know. That's so strange to me because I guess maybe people aren't using it as much. But then some places, it's like, you know, I'm pretty sure most, even for like an inexpensive purchase, or I don't, you know what, I don't know the details, but I think a lot of the stuff that you need to do besides the touch, you know, near field thing, things like, okay, you need to sign, you need to do this. You, in one case, like if you've got a chip card, yeah. I've been places where you have to you use the chip card that's in your pocket as well. It's like, that seems really strange. But I think those are mostly you know, like vendor things. But there's tons of places where you just go, you hit the button, ding, it's done. I just, that would be transformative for so many things. So much more secure, so much more fast for everybody. You know, there are still people writing checks. It's mental. It is mental. Anyway. Totally mental. Space. Mental. 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 God, sorry. I, we, I talked a lot. Um, Okay, so you can pick here. I have an excellent response to uh, two listener questions. You know what? Why don't we save listener Brian for our next episode? Okay, sure. And I got a lot to say to listener Brian. Uh, so stay, stay tuned for this future episode of Back to Work because it's going to be really good. It's a good one. Uh, <laughs> I think uh, I, this would be a good one for you and I to answer. Listener Tom. May I? Yeah, go for it. Listener Tom writes in to say, my question is how you prepare for a new move. Our work unit is getting relocated to a different floor with unfortunately open offices and new fresh computers. I've recently been uh, reading deep work by Cal Newport and I'm concerned on how this will impact my productivity. At the same time, my wife and I recently purchased a new house and are preparing for that big transition. Any advice you have for these big changes would be great. What do you think about listener Tom's question about how to prepare for a new move? You could take it anywhere you want to go, but I thought, I think that's a very interesting question with, uh, Oh, lots of knock-on effects about how you approach it. Yeah, there really are. I think there's something interesting to be said for the whole concept of moving because there are very few things like maybe having a child would be in this category, of, but there are very few things in your life that you will do that will affect truly every single aspect of your entire life like moving will. Um, I remember mm -hmm. when we moved to North Carolina and I was driving around and I was like, this doesn't feel like my home. It doesn't feel like where I live. It wasn't like, 
it, it felt unnatural or something. It just, it was like, I don't like, I don't live here. Like this doesn't feel like a thing for me. And I remember reading some article saying, oh, it'll take you this many weeks or this many months or this many times doing your commute before you will feel comfortable and feel like you actually live there. And it, uh, you know, I I remember vividly re- realizing one day after probably six months is like, all right, this feels like home now. And mm-hmm. it's getting yourself into that openness so that you're ready to not feel like you're at home to have the things that, you know, for a lot of us, I think our, our comfort comes from our environment in some way. Um, mm-hmm. it, 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 it's something about being in our comfort zone of saying like a friend of mine was just telling me like, I finally got my, uh, apartment set up just the way I like it. And like the right, like lighting in the right blinds on the thing. And like the temperature, I figured out the way my air conditioning works to keep it the right temperature. And, you know, like little details like that take time before you feel like you're at, at home. And I think if you go into it and your goal is to try to recreate that right away, for me, that always caused stress. And so the, the mental preparation is I think the biggest part of knowing we're going to be changing everything and nothing's going to feel normal for a period of time. I don't know if that's an answer. Oh, it is. It is an answer. It's, um, yeah, one of the, one, to me, one of the in, interesting and very important precepts of just getting organized in general, whether it's for a move or otherwise, is, you know, finding the organic way that things are going to work or anticipating how you might want to do it. I mean, I feel like there is this, if you decide to clear the decks, which is something you have to do with a move, you've yeah. got to really start over, take everything out of boxes, decide where things go. Um, on the one hand, it, it's probably foolish to try and recreate, totally recreate the environment you used to have. We all like, for example, we all like our desks to be a certain way. That makes total sense. Like, mm-hmm. I like my desk to be this way. You know, I like my kitchen to be organized in thus and such way. But there's all kinds of patterns that will not emerge until you've been in that new place for a while. And I would, I guess this ends up being advice, but I would say one thing to think about is start with as minimal of a setup as you can. And then this is such an uh, an unusual and nearly unique opportunity to start over and discover what's essential to what you do. Um, And if, you know, that may not be important to you. Like if you work, if you are a carpenter or you have a wood shop, you're going to need all those tools for sure. But I'll say one thing that we do just as an example of a mini move is, um, <laughs> sounds so silly, but I started dreading, we have one of those big metal restaurant tables, like an island in the middle of our kitchen where a lot of activity happens. That's where a lot of stuff happens. It's really closer to like an old school dinner table than our dinner table is. We do lots of stuff around that table, whether it's making a blue apron meal or like cutting up the roast or whatever. And it's got a big metal drawer. You don't talk about those like stainless steel, big, heavy tables. There, yeah, it's a great no, thing to exactly have. exactly what you're talking about. Well, you know, you know how Kipple, as Philip K. Dick says, you know how Kipple accumulates. And, you know, something that used to be a very useful area, famous example here, anywhere you put your mail down becomes a junk pile if you're not right. careful. In our kitchen, there were these two drawers where we put most of our stuff, utensils, gadgets, whatever. And they were more and more becoming inhabited by pointy things. It had suddenly, I dreaded opening this drawer because it wasn't just knives, it was skewers metal and bamboo skewers. It was those giant four-tined forks you use to like lift up a roast or a turkey. Oh yeah, right. Um, 
it was, uh, what else was in there? Oh, oh, um, like we had pumpkin carving tools in there. Like what, like, what is that doing in there? And there's this totally manic thing that I do twice a year that ends up being really powerful, which is, this is such an angry dad thing to do. I get a banker's box because yes, I keep banker's boxes around. I get a banker's box and I put literally everything in those drawers into the banker's box. So good. Now I'm not going to dread this because it's not pointy. Now what goes into those drawers? I'm, I'm going somewhere with this. Well, I'll tell you what goes into those drawers. One thing is stuff I know I will need to make dinner tonight. Like one set of tongs, long handle tongs, because we're going to need to, you know, uh, brown this thing on the on the uh, range. Right. There's going to be maybe the big the big uh, kitchen knife. But at first, it's such a nice feeling to clean out those drawers and wipe them out with a sponge, and then just put in a couple things. And now I'm not saying do this forever, but in that case, now I'm not going to put grab anything from that box until it needs to be there. And I'm going to ask myself, like, how often I really need this? Do I really need the citrus zester to be on top of everything else, et cetera, et cetera? Now, this goes for lots of things. This could go for the junk drawer in your house. This could go for wherever that counter is where you put down tons of your mail. Now, what does this have to do with Tom and his move? Is I think there's a pattern to be discovered here, which is the accumulate the accumulations of kipple from li- lives you've had in the past will take over your current life if you let it. If you, if you, if one thinks too much about like making something comfortable like the past, you may be missing an opportunity that wasn't there before. Maybe your new home, maybe it's in a big city and now you have a much smaller kitchen than you had before. Maybe it's in a suburb and you have a bigger kitchen than you had before. Well, wouldn't it be sensible for you to rethink the way that the, there's the kitchen triangle. There's that, they used to say in, um, in graphics class, they used to say that when you lay out a kitchen, you want the triangle of, what was it? Refrigerator oven and counter to be like the perimeter of that triangle should be less than 21 feet. One of those neat things you learn. I didn't know that. Yeah. That basically, however you, that triangle gets arranged, you don't want to have to walk too far, but you also want it to be far enough apart that you aren't running into each other. But I think that's also true of your office. The Kelda, what I want to add that to show notes, because that's something that I would like to read more on the, it's called the kitchen triangle. Well, see, triangle, kitchen triangle layouts. Look at that. The kitchen work Kitchen work triangle. Well, check, my, check my check my work on this. I might have I might have gotten the this kitchen wrong. work triangle is a concept used to determine efficient kitchen layouts. The primary tasks in a home kitchen are carried out between the cooktop, the sink, and the refrigerator. These three points and the imaginary lines between them make up what kitchen experts call the work triangle. The idea what? is that when these three elements are close but not too close proximity to one another, the kitchen will be easy and efficient to use, cutting down on wasted steps. It says, oh, look ex- at, look, go down to application. Look at that. Look at the specifics. It's super interesting. Oh, wow. I like that. No leg of the triangle should be less than four feet or more than nine feet. Right. I mean, on the one hand, it would seem really convenient to cook in a motorhome, but actually you're really cramped and you can't do that much. Right. But more than nine feet, you're walking, walking, walking. The sum of all three sides of the triangle should be between 13 feet and 26 feet. This is so interesting. Wow. I didn't I know had this no was idea this a, was such a I didn't thing. know this was this much of a thing. But that is that is certainly a way. Uh, so so okay. So I guess we're kind of getting ahead a little bit because now I, I'm I'm talking about like once you're moving into that space, but you know when you're moving, it is also the other uh, side of that is like that is an opportunity to rethink a lot of what you choose to carry with you. Amen. Whether, whether that's your office or your home, and you know, I, I guess I, I I don't know if I got this from somebody else, but a real pillar for me in the forty three Fuller's days was. 
along the lines, and this goes for inbox zero, this goes for whatever, is like there's nothing sensible about organizing something that should be thrown away. There, there's no there's no glamour in trying to figure out or no benefits to be gained from spending your time organizing something that you should have thrown out a long time ago. Yeah. Whether that's your email or whether that's your bamboo skewers, you know, or think about think about your cables. Like, you know what? For fun, keep one 30-pin cable because you never know. John Roderick <laughs> might come over and he'll need it. But, but you know, how many, like, old USB and SCSI cables? I guess those are obvious ones. But, like, I've got those. I don't know why. I have boxes full, my banker's boxes, full of old audio equipment that I have no use for anymore. And it's just sitting there accumulating. Like, that is, this is such a nice opportunity to, on the one hand, shed the detritus of previous lives mm -hmm. to then consequently create room for a new life, even if it's a very slightly different life. But it's a good chance to figure out who you are and what you do. And that sounds corny, but I really, I really think that is true. When you move into a new house, you know, full of hope, well, God, don't let the first thing you do be to fill up the entire thing with new oversized furniture. Like wait and see, you know, it's like they used to say, like, you know, we're not going to build the sidewalks until we see where the students have made paths. Right. And I think that really applies to your work and home life as well. I want to talk more about this, but I want to make sure also that you tell me about another thing that you like. Another thing that I like. I can do that. Have, have I ever told you about hot jar? Hot jar. Hot jar. Hot jar. Divide it's, that by nine, please. Okay. So let me tell you about the way that, that websites work today. This oh, is, I want to hear this. And I mean, really since the beginning of time mm, mm. is you're going to go and you're going to get somebody to maybe you're using a Squarespace site. Maybe you're using your own website that you, you design or a designer designed it for you. And a lot of what goes into the design of the site is we wanted to have our logo. We wanted to have this that, and the other thing. But as far as actually how sites work, it's all based on hunches and guesses. That's it. <laughs> that's it. Hunches and guesses. That's it. You don't know really. Uh, that's a black art. How, yes. How are people going to really use the site once we've built it? And you could do things like A-B testing and stuff, but you don't really know. And the old days, you would gather like 20 people together and sit down and walk around and watch them sit in a room and like try to use your website. But that's ridiculous. That's not modern and it doesn't scale at all. Why not have the people that are already using your site teach you how they're using the site without them having to do any extra work and without you having to do any extra Isn't work? Isn't that interesting, Dan? It's, it's a little bit like the sidewalk situation. Watch where your users are walking rather than trying to hustle them onto the sidewalk. That's brilliant. Mm -hmm. It's exactly right. And hot jar, hot jar, what lets you do instead of trying to guess what motivates your users' behavior, now you can actually see where they're going on the site, where they're clicking or tapping, where they're moving, how far they scroll, what they ignore. All of this as if you're watching over their shoulder because what it does is it creates these really, really cool uh, heat maps. It look exactly like, in, if you're curious what this looks like, you remember how the Predator used to see through and when mm -hmm. it shows you in the Predator movies how it's like everything's like hot and cold and like you can see the guy he thinks he's hiding behind. He's, I think I'm hiding behind the tree, but yes. he's like, there he is right there. It sort he of, sees your heat. He, the Predator sees your heat signature. He sees your heat signature. And this yeah. is exactly the way that this works. You can see the areas of the screen that the you, I mean, it's all private and everything. It's not like you're seeing who's doing what, but you can actually see an overlay of user behavior over your actual website with those kinds of colors, those little heat maps over the website that shows you, oh, you know what? 
people are never scrolling down. So the fact that I have a call to action at the bottom of the website is no one's ever getting to that. Or you know what? Maybe the website, why is that? Maybe the website's too long, etc. But mm-hmm. whatever it is, you can learn how to optimize your website's user experience, prioritize the content that needs attention. And you can do this very, very quickly because you're seeing, you know, this, this kind of input from your users right away and uh, no more guessing. So they made a special URL for listeners of this show, hotjar.com slash B2W. And if you go there and you use that URL, hotjar.com slash B2W, you will get a 30-day extended free business trial with Hotjar, all the functionality, all-in-one analytics, all the feed, everything is there, hotjar.com slash B2W. Go check it out and uh, stop guessing. They're going to run. That's theirs. They can run with that. You're just an idea guy. I mean, that's what I'm, that's what I do, but you know, whatever they want to do with it is fine. Thanks, Hotjar. Thank you. Fuck, fuck. Uh, we got a, um, uh, we got a, uh, an email from a frequent, uh, uh, feedbacker. Yeah. Listener, listener, Brian. Yeah. Who's a, uh, a loyal listener. Hello, listener, Brian. Brian, 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 Brian. Love him. Put him in the hot jar. He, that guy, you don't know it to, to yeah. just read his email, but the guy's a, a, a beast. He's a PhD. He is. I mean, this is, this is a guy who's, I mean, he's full on embracing his education. He's embracing the educational system. Yes. Full catastrophe lifestyle. I mean, this is serious. <laughs> this is for real. And this is the kind of listener that I feel no, like Brian, we, Brian knows there's no dress rehearsal. No, seriously. Always on stage. Listener Brian wrote in and uh, he threw me a softball because obviously I'm going to want to talk about this. Yeah. Thank you, listener Brian. Listener Brian says, I enjoyed the most recent episode. Thank you, listener Brian. And was intrigued at the end when Merlin was talking about dependencies, critical path, milestones, and resource allocations and resource leveling. Good work writing down exactly what I said. Thank you. <laughs> I'm not familiar with these terms and was wondering if you could expand on them a bit. I assume they're project manager speak, but they seem like they could be super useful in terms of doing your work or just living your life. Um, he writes more to talk about, you know, life infrastructure. Well, duh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course I want to talk about this. It's, I love any opportunity to misunderstand project management in front of other people, but oh yes, I would love to talk about this. Is that okay with you? Yeah, I would love that. And before you, before yes. you dive in, mm-hmm. uh, I'm curious, did, what did you think of the fact that he had no, there was no subject uh, to his email at all. It's Brian. I was, I was really, no I was subject. really intrigued. I was actually really intrigued by that. This is the kind of thing that I think it's, it, it, it's become an attention getter for me. If you leave out the subject now, I really want to know what's going on. Like, why did you leave it off? What kind of, what kind of person leaves the subject off? Tell me more. Now I want to engage directly with this, with this other person. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, again, the, the, the one, the one that will always get somebody is we need to talk. Oh. Ah, whoa. Do we? Yeah. Or, uh, you know, bad news. That's another good oh, subject no, line. Oh, no, I don't want that. I never want that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, super interesting. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm dealing with inputs here. People are inputting me. Are you um, okay? You're going to need to lay yeah, down? No, I'll be, I'll be all right. I'm just answering things. Want to stretch things. a little? No, I paid my electric bill. That was good. Our gas bill's high. Uh, listen to Brian. Uh, that's a really good question, and I would love to talk about that. This was in a previous episode. I imagine our last, latest episode. Yeah. And what was I saying? I think I was going off a little bit 
as I do. Hmm. Maybe while we were, t- I don't really remember, but maybe I think we were talking about how there's calendar people and not calendar people and how I'm like, you're a calendar serious. guy. I am. And how we talked about like how funny it used to be that I would want to schedule a call with my friend, Dan, like, isn't that odd? <laughs> yeah. And all this stuff about like what, how broken I am inside with my need to have calendars work a certain way. Right. And I was, as I was, you know, getting into my fit of peak, I was saying like how, uh, I, I worry about the people who think everything is easy and mm. I worry about the people who, and I think what I described was now I'm remembering, I talked about that ratio, that mental ratio one has about the things you have to not do in order to do a thing mm-hmm. or the dependencies. And that got me into this project management speak. Um, and I tossed out some terms I learned, you know, 15 years ago. Right. So I would, I would love to talk about that. And in particular, uh, I prepared a little bit in particular, I wanted to talk about how there are benefits. You know, it's funny. There, there are certain kinds of careers, jobs, experiences that unexpectedly help you, or maybe expectedly, I guess, help you in life. They give you a paradigm for understanding how you can think about your role in the world. I think a really obvious one would be being in the military. Like if you're a really disorganized kid who becomes, you know, you join the army or you join the Marines, like you've got to really get your mind right. You know, Gunnery Sergeant Hartman is, is not going to put up with your stuff. You're going to have to, like, learn to deal. Right. You're going to have to become organized. You're going to have to become a clear and decisive thinker. You're going to have to think a lot about teamwork. I mean, I'm just speaking phonetically here about something I don't actually understand. But my, I've worked – some of my – I've said this a long time ago. Some of my favorite people to work with in a jobby job are people who've been in the military. Um, because there's – a lot of them are just super focused, super organized – and while not obsessed with appearances, they understand the importance of how you present yourself to other people and how you really give it up for the team. Put yourself out of the way and really think about the big project. Another one would be sports. Like, I'm not a big sports person, but I do understand the value, the character stuff that you get out of being involved in any kind of sports over time. You know, you have to learn, again, you learn about teamwork, you learn about practice, you learn about time off, you learn about having a role that's important, If even if you're not the most important person, that you still have a role. That's all really important. Right. Again, to talk about being a carpenter, I think somebody somebody who's a, a craftsperson, I think about, you know, a Ron Swanson type character, like there's, <laughs> there's even a very funny episode of Parks and Rec, you probably haven't gotten to, there's a very funny episode where Rob Lowe uh, has bought a crib for his kid and no, then discovered not, he thought not he, seen that yet. he thought he bought the safest crib in the world but it's being recalled because it's deadly and <laughs> then Ron helps him build a crib Ron has found his crib tree the tree that he will kill and dry in order to turn into a and you get this view into like you know Ron Swanson is an actual you know craftsperson and you know this kind of view in the studio and of course um Chris Traeger is trying to turn everything Ron is doing into some kind of a metaphor about parenthood. And it's absolutely hilarious. And Ron's just like, no, I'm just making wood here. It's like, but so those are all, why am I saying all that? Those are all things, huh, people texting. Those are all things that teach you about the shape, one way to think about the shape of what you do. And so if I had to tr- like try and like distill a lot of what I found valuable about project management, it was that like projects that had succeeded in the past that I've been involved with, despite my involvement in it, like I never realized that project management is the glass that holds the water. 
and it's truly a, like a clear glass. Ideally, you want a total view at what's inside the glass without even noticing that there's a glass there. Right. But buddy, if you did not have that glass, there would be water everywhere. That's what project management is um, in some ways. And again, that's that's an analogy. But I say all this in the service of saying that I think learning a little bit about project management and having exposure to people who are good, really good at project management can be very, very useful in other parts of your life beyond work. It can make you slightly more neurotic like it has for me, but there are certain concepts like these ones that Brian has asked about that I'd, I'd love to address a little bit here and talk about what we can learn about life yeah. from project management. Yeah. So a project manager, it varies a lot in place to place. I mean, depending on the size of the team, the size of the projects, you know, there are certainly, you know, anybody who's a manager in most, especially in tech companies, is both a practitioner of the skill, as well as a leader of the team, as well as somebody who has responsibilities to report to the people above them and to execute on their desires. It's, it's complicated to be a manager. But you can also be, have a lot of the same sorts of responsibilities of a manager while still being just a project manager. So a lot of times you get something called, in a formal environment, you get what's called a project management charter which is at the kickoff of the project. You have maybe a meeting and in a somewhat ceremonial <laughs> moment, they say, look, this is Donna. She is the project manager. You got to do what she says because I said so. Right. So Donna speaks for me and speaks for the project. And this can vary. That could be somebody who speaks for the user. But the, the role of the project manager, unlike the usual manager, is that you're not the boss. You're just a member of the team. It's fairly rare and probably not desirable for the project manager to also be the leader because the leader's got stuff to do. The project manager has a very specific set of skills, <laughs> very particular set of skills that, and again, it depends on the project, but that involve the meta, not the meta work of the project. How do you put it? It's your job to make sure that this train stays on the tracks and keeps, uh, you know, hitting the stations on time. So depending on your role as a project manager, um, you will almost definitely have things involving scheduling. You may have a slightly leadership role in terms of like where we should be by a certain time. Uh, you will have a certain amount of mandate to make sure that the budget is working in the way that it was planned. But I think the bottom line is that you are the person whose responsibility is to understand what the rules of this project are and then to make sure that they are executed to the best of everyone's ability. And in some cases, you will really be more like a glorified admin. A lot of what you do might be scheduling phone calls. That's a lot of what I used to have to do. The people over here are working. They got stuff to do. They shouldn't have to schedule phone calls. That's your job. But, you know, it'll vary a lot. But there are certain sets of skills in project management that all hang together. Like I say, one is understanding what the rules are. That comes down to things like understanding which parts of this project do and do not have wiggle room. Um, having a having for yourself and sharing with the team a very a very clear sense of what the goal of the project or goals of the project are and then absolutely realistic and doable constraints that are up to date up to date constraints about how the project is conducted is this making sense so far yes so what's the opposite of that or what's what's the not project management approach is oh we're going to uh, we're going to launch our new log cabin portal this summer. Let's all start coding. Like, okay, well, first of all, what does that mean? Is there a spec for this? Have we scoped this out? How many people are going to be dedicated to this? Okay, what does this summer mean? What 
does that include things like testing? I mean, obviously, you, you, hopefully your mind is reeling too with the idea of a poorly defined project that lots of people are just going to work on independently and we hope it works out. Well, somebody's got to be the, the den mother. Somebody's got to be there to make sure that stuff all goes together. And that's where you learn about the constraints. And a lot of being a project manager is knowing the constraints and making sure that they are accounted for or even leveraged in a way that works for everybody on the team. You got to be a good communicator. Uh, and on a psychological basis, you've got to be a good communicator. You've got to be somewhat charismatic. You also have to have a very good understanding of the fact that everybody has their own motivations. Those motivations will differ, be different. And oftentimes, those motivations will be at odds with each other. There will be things like competition and zero-sum games that come up in the project. And a part of your role might be seeing those things coming and dealing with them before they become a problem. And then I think another super important part that seems obvious but can be left out is to understand that this project we're working on now should always be con or frequently be considered in the context of other projects that are going on inside the company and very importantly in terms of the really big picture at your company or with your team. Mm -hmm. So don't act like you're the only game in town. Other stuff is going on. Other people have goals. Other people will – probably change the constraints of your project, which we'll talk more about in a second. But I don't know, that to me is like, these are some of the general skills of a project manager, is is like that you're the one who keeps all of this sewn together and who's making sure that the plan we've all agreed to is being executed upon and that you have a certain amount of woofy or, uh, you know, really responsibility to cause change to happen before it becomes a problem. And then if it does become a problem, to help figure out, escalate things, ameliorate that, and not screw up the whole project because this one thing broke a little bit. So as far as project management as a role, do you think there's people that are going into that with, because I remember back in the in the very old days, project managers were, in. I think they still are in very high demand, but there were a lot of people who were dedicated to project management specifically like they didn't they weren't ex designers ex developers ex whatever they were like they went to school for this and they were familiar with all of these sort of professional methodologies and other things that that are there around project management and that back then my last real exposure to it they would say oh you're familiar with such and such uh you know methodology have you been trained in it like been waterfall yeah. versus yeah how important is all of that well, that's a good, that's a really good question because to, to, to the basis of your question, I don't know if there's that many people that realize at the age of six that they want to be a project manager. <laughs> right. I think there's probably more people who want to be astronauts and stuff or social media managers, I guess. But I, I do think it's something people happen into, like so many of the careers that aren't the glamour careers, it's the kind of thing that you find yourself doing and maybe you realize that you're good at. There's a lot of people who want to be novelists well, maybe I'm not going to write novels. Okay, maybe I'll be a short story writer. Mm, could be. Mm, now, to make ends meet, I end up becoming an editor. And you're like, oh, you know what? I'm actually really good at being an editor. You know, even though I wanted to be Ernest Hemingway, right. it really, it, maybe it's better for me to be, to work my way up. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. you, you develop these really practical skills. I don't think anybody wakes up, you know, at the age of 10 saying, I want to be a fulfillment manager or I want to be an operations person. Like, those aren't sexy jobs. But those are the jobs that that let the sexy stuff happen and the unsexy stuff. It's what it's those operations is one of the most important things in a company, and it's not sexy at all. It's very, very difficult and thankless. Um, and to be honest, I mean, I don't know. May, I might have a little bit of a thorn in my side about this, but like, I feel like project management got short shrift 
where it was for a long time, at least on project teams that I was aware of, it was kind of seen as a nice to have, or it was seen as in the same way that web development, the programmers thought of the web designers as people who mainly did production graphics. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, no, let's change the way we, the experience of the site works. Well, we can't like the engineers decide all that stuff. And in a similar way, I think there was this idea that project managers are a glorified to use an old word, a glorified secretary, mm -hmm. that it's their, it's their job to just keep the paperwork going and update the Gantt chart. Well, the Gantt chart doesn't mean shit if the project doesn't make sense. Right. There has to be somebody there who's empowered to make sure that what we're doing is clearly communicated, understood, and resourced throughout. And then to understand that all of these things do change over time, and there are trade-offs for every decision we make. This is a critical take-home, real-world take-home of project management, is that it's all, all about trade-offs. If it's not about trade-offs, you haven't looked closely enough yet because <laughs> you can't just make decisions about how something would be awesome. You have to do risk management about what happens if we do that. Well, that means we can't work on this thing. That means we have to move these resources over there. And this uh, just, just to get past all this window dressing, did, did that answer your question? I think so, yeah. I mean, if, if but, it, but I mean, you know a good project manager when you see him. I do think there are certain personality types that really suit this role. Um how shall I put this without sounding insensitive? A, a lot of the people I've known who are really good project managers have a real mind for dealing with a whole lot of information, assimilating it very quickly, and having a very high standard for things like organization and clarity. Mm -hmm. Perhaps a slightly tightly wound person. Somebody who's super casual in the sense of like not really sweating, like, oh, it's cool, we can do it Monday. Maybe not the best person for being project management. Because a lot of what you have to do is like ask those questions about trade-offs. Well, okay. And we'll get into this with this vocabulary in a second. But like, so if we don't finish our part of this until Monday, will that have any effect on other people? It's the project manager's role to look into that and say, well, actually, you know what? There are two dependencies here. And we'll talk about that in a second. But there are two things that won't happen in order unless our thing is done, right? There's, you know, if you think about baking a cake, you know, you, you can't slice the cake until you've bought the eggs. There's, a, there's, there's things that have to happen involving mixing and heat and waiting. And, right. You know what I mean? Yeah. And there's no, there's no concurrency, you know, in that sense. Concurrency can really be death to a project because you assume that so many things can and should happen independently of themselves. Well, somebody is sweating whether that's really reasonable so there's one concept I want to toss out at the very top, which is maybe one of the most valuable things to take away, which is the project management triangle. Like the which kitchen I know, triangle? Kind of. Like, I know everybody knows this, but like, it's nice to be reminded of this. You can go, go search for project management triangle and you'll find many implementations and wordings. But what it comes down to is this. Imagine an equilateral triangle. Like you got a triangle, all the sides are equal. And those three sides are, uh, you know, time, Second side is what cost, budget, resources. The other side is scope, which could be thought of as things like the quality or the number of features, right? So imagine that triangle. So you've got you've got the amount of time. Like there maybe is there a deadline on this? Okay, well that's important to know for the time. There is the cost. Here's it. We have this much budget. Period. This much time. This much budget, and we need it to do this. And the rule of thumb, so first of all, just, just get that paradigm in your head that is, as you change those, as you demand more of one, it doesn't change the fact that it's still a triangle. It just changes the length of the sides. You, you um, 
are it would be very valuable for anybody, project manager or otherwise, to understand that any project consists of time, cost, and scope. However, you want to use those words. Now, the rule of thumb in project management is you get to pick two. And really, in a lot of cases, you really, really get to pick one. Right. So for example, you want all the features and all of the quality. You want to make the most full-featured, high-quality thing ever made. You're going to need at least a lot of time and probably a lot of budget, right? If, if you really want something that has a very broad and deep scope, it's going to be difficult to make something highly with tons of features and quality unless you have a lot of time to spend on it and a lot of money. Well, let's say you have, this is where you start getting into the, the why projects fail. Well, my boss says this has to be the greatest website ever made and it needs to be up by May 15th. Well, there's all kinds of trou troubles with that. <laughs> um, like how do we arrive at that date? And what is your budget for making the greatest website in the world right. in two weeks? Because I'll bet you, I bet you once you start poking around a little bit, you're going to find out there's not an unlimited budget. That date was maybe a little bit made up and it doesn't even need to be actually that good. There's all kinds of ways that we can deal with that. But this is, this is, this is your job is to go like, I mean, let's be honest. A lot of the times the most important points on the triangle end up being time and cost because there's not unlimited time. There's not unlimited budget. In many companies, a project does not even see the light of day until it's almost due. Well, if time is the single most important part of what we're doing, and we don't have huge or endless budget, that's going to tell us so much about reducing the amount of scope. So it's the project manager's job to like remind people of that to the point of annoyance, and then make sure that we're taking into taking all that into account with our planning. So the so anyway, project management triangle. Look it up. What is the net effect of that? And the net effect of that is is you become, to use John Syracuse's phrase, hypercritical. Mm -hmm. You learn to really pick nits about every part of this. And anything that somebody has has like a little chunk of hand wave him about, wait a minute, let's stop. Have we accounted for when these people are going to be on vacation? Have we accounted for the fact, oh my God, that's right, we're moving the office in that month. Have we accounted for the fact that this is when a lot of, you know what I mean? There's all these different parts of this. And your job as a, as a project manager is to kind of be a professional karma suck. It's your job to take all the joy out of this for just a little while and make sure that we're still on track. So that's some, that's some setup. And then in terms of like what these, these actual words mean, I put a few of these in show notes, but some important concepts, I mean, most of us know what a milestone is. Um, there's a couple different ways to look at a milestone. A milestone is like a, you know, a major turning point in the project, whether or not it is a dependency. We'll talk about that in a minute, but you know, you've got, let's say you're doing a website, there's going to be the engagement phase, as they call it, like the getting the budget and signing the contracts that takes a certain amount of time. There's going to be the, what the meeting and planning part. There might be some interviews involved. There might be some initial designs. There's going to be, you know, but we, you know, each of those is a milestone. In the case of like a design agency, those milestones become important or development agency. Those milestones become very important to identify because that's when you get paid. You might get paid at, right, wouldn't you say? Yeah, definitely. You get paid at three milestones, four milestones, whatever it is. Right. So there's a down payment, but then like, are you not going to see any money till the end? Well, okay. Well, like, is that's there- tough. a yeah, is there a milestone where like once we're through the initial design process, this next payment comes? Those milestones become important because guess what? You're not going to get paid unless you hit that milestone, probably on the date you promised. So that means planning, 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 thinking, thinking, and a lot of risk management. Now, related to milestones are dependencies, which we talked about a little bit, but these are this is a this is a game changer is the idea of dependencies. So let's go back to that cake. Um, 
first of all, do I know how to make a cake? Well, I kind of know how to make a cake. Let's make sure somebody knows how to make a cake. <laughs> you, you know, uh, it isn't just stoners who sit around and come up with ideas for things they have no way to implement. There are businesses that come up with ideas for like, oh, you know what? We should get into e-commerce. Okay, what does that mean? Let's talk about the project. So let's just even say like, we know how to bake a cake. Well, you know all kinds of things, you know. Well, okay, we're gonna bake a cake. When are you gonna do that? Well, we're gonna bake the cake today. All right, is the kitchen available? Is everything working? I don't know, let's find out. Do we have a recipe that we like? Have we gotten the ingredients that we need? No, really. Are you sure? Because you don't want to get to the point of almost being done making the cake batter if you don't actually have eggs or the frosting or the right, whatever right. it is. You see where we're, where we're going with this. You don't get to slice the cake until you've bought the ingredients, right? You, you don't, it all moves at dependencies. So a dependency is part two of this project, for example, can't begin until part one is completely finished. Part three can't begin until part two is completely finished. And this is where you get into those kinds of delays that become really difficult because somebody, you might be really super well-staffed and like very comfortable with step three, but if step one is something that's fairly new or there's a new person in the role, that now you're pushing out your dates because of those dependencies. So what does that have to do with life? Well, let's go back to moving, right? You cannot get to putting your stuff on the shelf until you've unpacked the boxes. You can't unpack the boxes until they've been moved. You can't move until stuff is in the boxes. You can't get stuff in the boxes until you've got the boxes. Those are all dependencies, all super obvious until they're not. And so again, another one of the great project management skills is learning to identify dependencies that other people have not thought about or are not taking seriously enough. Because guess what? If they haven't, guess what that affects? Time, budget, and scope. That means extra time now to, to acquire and uh, install whatever we need, whether that's people or servers or whatever. I'm, I'm belaboring this, but that kind of thinking can have such an impact, even if that's getting out the door to go to school. Like, we need shoes and socks every day. Would it benefit us to know what shoes and socks we're going to wear tomorrow? Because that could actually take half an hour off of the morning ritual if we have that ready. In our case with our daughter, like every night we pick out, are you going to have lunch at school? Or are you going to have, is mom going to pack you lunch? Well, if mom packs you lunch, do we have things that we can have for lunch? Oh, if we don't have things for lunch, we got to go to the grocery store. Again, dependencies, dependencies, dependencies. And although it will make you neurotic, becoming aware of dependencies will change your game as a person almost as much as it does as a project manager. And then that gets into critical path. I don't want to go too far into that, but it's like the most efficient path that could be taken if everything went great. Like there's no way we can do this project without these things being hit. And, you know, the resource allocation and leveling, I don't know a ton about this, but it, it basically involves changes that come up in the project where you want to make sure you're putting everybody's resources to their best use. How you move people's attention and effort from place to place as needed. And then I guess to end it, I mean, a big part of being a project manager is knowing that this stuff will change, stuff will break, right. people will get sick, relatives will die, computers will break. How much wiggle room do you know to put? Like I tell you a dirty little secret, add at least 20% to every step without fail. Because believe me, <laughs> you're going to need it. There's no way to plan for everything. But if you have strong bones to your project, it means that you've thought it out enough that, you know, the thing won't fall apart at the first problem. And I think that's just so applicable to life. Hmm. Mm. Mm. Triangles everywhere. Triangles everywhere. Dan, did you want to tell me about one more thing that you like? I would love to do that. I would love to tell. And this is this is special. 
close close to my heart because I the, mm. the person who uh who made this is uh super genius. Is a really cool service. Higher Loop is the name of it. And there we've seen all kinds of job boards come and go over the years. And that's not what this is. Higher Loop is nothing to do with uh with the job board directly. They do something even better than that. They understand hiring is a tedious process, right? Most of us who have been in that role of hiring, it's not fun. It's very, very difficult. You can make a really good job description. You can post it to all the different job boards that you want to use. But before you know it, you're getting dozens or these days probably hundreds of emails Applicants of all types, right? Some are pretty good. Some are maybe not so good. But you want to reply to everybody and you want to give everybody an equal shot, right? This is very, very time consuming and very difficult. And managing it in email is not really reasonable, I don't think. And and having hired a number of people, both like for my own business and also as like a hiring manager in a company, it can become a nightmare. And Hireloop they're here to change all of that. They exist to solve the problem of inefficient hiring. They're not a job board. Instead, what they do is they make it easy for people like hiring managers to keep track of all of their applicants in one organized place. So you go out and you post your position on any job board that you want. Interested applicants, they go ahead and they they do follow the instructions, but instead of giving them your email address... Uh, it's a custom hire loop email address and they handle the rest. It's my analogy is, have you remember those websites that uh, they, they're still around where if you're planning your trip, you just forward your, you get your flight itinerary, you forward it to the, to the website. Plans, plans at tripit.com. Yes, that's right. You forward it to them. They know who you are because your email address and where it's coming from. And, uh, and then you get your, oh, you're going to rent a car, you forward it there. You get your hotel reservation, you forward mm-hmm. it there. Same concept, and it all works through that custom address so that now all of your applicants are going to send their, uh, their correspondence, whether it's their resume, whether it's their email, whatever it is. It's all going to come through to this one place, and Hireloop then is going to completely organize everything for you. Collect it all in one place. You can then go in and you can review your applicants. You can converse with your filtered list of applicants. You can collaborate with coworkers to rank and evaluate the candidates in there. I mean, it's it's absolutely genius the way that this works. And you pay per posting, not per hire. Okay, so if you might be looking for two or three candidates, that's a posting. You see what I'm saying? So you it's it's not if you want to hire 20 people you can do that. They're going to save you money. And one of my favorite things about all of this, you can quiet the noise mm. after the position is closed down. So when you mark that position is closed, because here's the problem. There are a lot of job boards out there that they're just scraping other job boards. So you, you might put a post out there on, uh, on April 25th and you might fill the position in two weeks, but other job boards are just going to start scraping it and they're going to post it like it's new they're not going to pick up that it was closed down so you're going to continue to get applicants this handles all that they automatically respond with a general notification like oh i'm so sorry the position has been filled existing applicants also get notified when you filled the position like it does it all super genius go check this out it is at higherloop.io higher h-i-r-e higherloop.io 
bit.ly.io slash B2W. Go there and you'll get free credit toward their professional feature. So again, go check it out. Super cool idea. Higherloop.io slash B2W. I love the idea of that. It's a great service and it fits really in nicely with what we were talking about too. Actually, uh, pretty much exactly. Yeah. Get a shoot a calm, calm the noise. Quiet, 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 the noise. quiet the noise. Seriously, great, great service. And, uh, and I wish I'd had that last time I was hiring because that was just a nightmare. Mm. Just a nightmare. Like, like sent like an angel from heaven. It's like an angel. Mm. It's been a huge week, Dan. Big week. Well, thanks to all of our sponsors. I think, uh, my God, we've been talking for an hour and 48 minutes. One, four, eight. Oh, my goodness. All right. Well, we got to button this up. All right. Okay, I love you. Love you too, Merlin, man.